Uh, good morning, everyone. And thank you, Sally, so much. If you have a Bible with you or on a device, can I invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 4? And let me start, as I often do, with a question. And the question is this Do you ever get discouraged? Do you ever get discouraged? I, I, I kind of reckon we all do. From time to time and for various reasons and at various points. But, but whenever discouragement kind of sets in, whenever it beds down, whenever it gets a grip, it can become dangerous. Especially for Christians. I was reading this week where someone has written that more believers have been resigned to the sidelines because of discouragement than perhaps any other reason. That, that's maybe a bit strong, you think. But if the enemy can somehow ensure that we get discouraged, but not only get discouraged, that we stay discouraged, it will have a debilitating effect on our lives. It, it will weaken and it will undermine our faith. Two weeks ago, we spoke about the reality of the spiritual battle that we all face. That opposition in the Christian life is inevitable. That we have an enemy who is on a search and destroy mission. With the objective to deceive and to distract and to divide us and to discourage us. Well, here in Nehemiah chapter 4, Opposition to the work of God has increased again. It's intensified again to the point where the people are deeply, deeply discouraged. And what is particularly interesting is the timing. The walls of Jerusalem are half built. We know that from verse 6 where we left off a couple of weeks ago. So there's been progress, there's been growth, there's been development. But at this halfway point, the enemy turns up the heat, which is clever. Because starting something is one thing. But continuing it and seeing it through is another. And that applies to certain projects, including building ones. It applies to ministry initiatives, even to life itself. How many of us know people who have become discouraged as Christians in midlife? Family members and friends who have become disheartened, disillusioned, disappointed, and often that discouragement that they feel translates or kind of expresses itself in different ways. It expresses itself in anger, in apathy, in indifference. But however it expresses itself, tragically, discouragement has the potential to damage faith and commitment. Discouragement during life. Discouragement during a project is a powerful tool of the enemy. 
And we must never underestimate its deadly effects, both in the short term, but particularly in the long term. And so as we read this next chapter in the story, let's see how discouragement manifests itself. Let's see how Nehemiah deals with it and addresses it so that we might, each of us might, we as a church might avoid becoming another casualty. Please stand with me for the public reading of God's instructive word. It's going to be on the screen. Nehemiah 4, picking up from where we left off two weeks ago at verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and we will put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us, 10 times over, wherever you turn, they're going to attack you. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords and their spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your families. Fight for your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears and shields and bows and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet, he stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us here. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. Grab a seat. San Balat and, and Tobiah, they, they have opposed Nehemiah and they have opposed the work and they have opposed the builders right from the word go. Now, as we read, they're joined by the Arabs and they're joined by the Ammonites and they're joined by the people of Ashdod who have all come together against Jerusalem to stir up trouble. You see, the enemy, 
is pressing in from every side. The people of God are surrounded. What's going to happen? The opposition has reached a critical level. How is Nehemiah going to deal with it? He's dealt with it before, but how is he going to deal with it this time when it's more extreme? Well, verse 9 provides the answer. But we prayed to our God. You see, that is Nehemiah's default response every single time. And I know I've made a lot of it every single time. But I don't apologize for highlighting it again. You see, prayer for Nehemiah was vital in all circumstances. It's what he did. It was his go-to practice. It was his holy habit, especially when he felt under pressure. If you were at a small group on Tuesday or Wednesday night, the first question you were asked if your leader was brave enough to ask it. The first question you were asked on Tuesday or Wednesday night at a small group was this. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? How would you describe it in a word or in a phrase or in a sentence? I know that's a personal question and some of you might think, you know, that's too personal a question to ask in any context. It's a personal question, but it's such a vital one because prayer and praying is essential in standing firm in our spiritual battle and against opposition. And after the Apostle Paul rhymes off the armor of God that every single Christian needs to wear, needs to put on, he writes this, and pray on all occasions with every kind of prayer and request. Nehemiah is in a desperate, difficult place. Conflict seems inevitable. It's coming at him from every angle. And so, what does he do? He prays. And you know, whatever comes our way in life, in your personal life, in church life, in your family life, in your work life, in social life, prayer has got to feature in your reaction and in your response because if it doesn't, it's going to leave you vulnerable and unprotected and unguarded. And so let me ask you again, how's your prayer life been this week? How's your daily conversation with God going? But it didn't stop there. And this is so important because we read, but we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Prayer and action. Nehemiah appealed to God for help and he did something to help himself and to help others. He proactively prayed and he proactively did something. We are to pray, but we are not to let our prayers become an excuse for doing nothing ourselves. We are to act, but we are not to put our trust in our actions, and we are to pray and never let our prayers be an excuse for doing nothing. You've got to strike 
the balance. It's not either or, it's both. And if you were going to err on a side, which side do you err on? I'll leave that up to you. What's your present tendency? Is it to act and then at some point to pray? Or is it to pray and hope for the best? at this point in the story that discouragement kicks in, or at least it certainly becomes apparent. Let me read verses 10, 11, and 12 again. The people in Judah said, and this is where, the, this is where you sense the discouragement is at a deep level. The people of Judah said, the strength of our laborers is given out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. And our enemies have said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and we'll put an end to their work and into the bargain. The Jews, our own people, have come and told us, not once, 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack you. You see, the people had originally been so excited to work now they find themselves discouraged in the work. They're tired. They're distracted. Hope is fading and fear has kicked in. And as I say, their own people keep banging on about the potential danger. And in our lives or in anything we attempt to do for God or with God, even in our own building project, any or all of this is going to happen. We're going to get tired. We're going to get distracted. We're going to feel we're losing hope. We may even get afraid. And people within may say over and over again, forget it. Just lay it down. Walk away. And so what I want to do is just use in these three verses, I, I kind of want to dissect discouragement. I want to identify certain features of it and then look at what Nehemiah did as he came up against it. So to start with, discouragement can flow from physical exhaustion and discouragement can leave us exhausted. These workers are out on their feet. And you know, when you're serving in a ministry over time, or when you're working on a project for years, it can become tiring, can't it? Be honest. People got up this morning and were coming down to do crash. To teach our kids. To set up a hall. And some of the people have been doing these kind of things for years and for years and have been serving. Some of you have been working on this project to see Windsor Baptist Church relocate into a new family home for years. And some of you are tired. And when we get tired, we can easily become discouraged. Secondly, they, they got distracted 
The people have lost their focus. Instead of looking at what they had done and what they had completed, the progress they had made, they began to focus their attention on all the work they still had to do. They lost sight of the half-built walls and started to see the piles of rubble that they still needed to construct into the other half of the walls. They got distracted, they got intimidated, and they got discouraged, and it happens all too easily. We forget what God has done. We forget that God has enabled us to do so much, we lose sight of it in our lives, in our church. And okay, no, we haven't always got it right, and we haven't always found it easy, but you know something? We're still here. We're still serving. We're still giving of ourselves. We're still working. But if the enemy can get us to concentrate on what we haven't done as yet, if he can get us to concentrate and focus on our problems or to see the sheer scale of the challenge that lies before us, you can easily become deflated and discontent and discouraged. Thirdly, they got, or they felt defeated. We cannot rebuild the wall, verse 10. Back in chapter 2, all the people had shouted with one one voice, let us start rebuilding. They were up for this. They were optimistic. Now halfway through, they're daunted and pessimistic. We cannot do this. And when you get discouraged, you begin to lose hope. And you become downbeat and you become defeatist. It has been said that in the history of the church, pessimism has always been a greater problem than atheism. You see, if discouragement is allowed to run its course, do you know what you will risk doing? You will risk just giving up, packing it in, bailing out. And the fourth thing about discouragement is that it leads to fear. And what does fear do? Fear paralyzes people. You see, the builders listened to the persistent prophets of doom. They allowed their discouraging, frightening words to scare them. They believed them, and they ended up immobile and feeling afraid. And discouragement can take you there, and the enemy knows it. If I can just get this person, if I can just get this church to a place where they're discouraged, Fear will kick in, and that will immobilize them. So what does, what does Nehemiah do? What does he do to dis- address their distress and their discouragement to help them to find a way forward and out of this? Well, before we go there, let me say one more thing about verses 10, 11, and 12. Here's the thing I want to say. They come after verse 9. Massive point, isn't it? 10, 11, and 12 come after verse 9. In verse 9, we read about how they prayed. And then we hear about them being discouraged. You see, life is tough at times. Life is hard. And even if we pray, it can remain tough and difficult. However much we pray, 
Troubles in life can often increase rather than decrease. I've said it before, I'll say it again, prayer is not a magic bullet. But as Raymond Brown, who I've quoted before, writes in his commentary on Nehemiah, as he acknowledges that verse 10, 11, and 12 come after verse 9, he says this, prayer is not a convenient device for removing life's problems, but a loving God's provision for coping with them. You see, prayer is vital. It has got to be our go-to practice. It has got to be a holy habit that keeps us connected to our Father, but it is not a guaranteed problem solver. So back to Nehemiah, what does he do? He's led the people in prayer, but they've got discouraged, exhausted, distracted, feeling defeated, they're afraid. In verse 13, he encourages the people to address their fears head on, to stand up to them, not to walk away and take cover, not to be overwhelmed, not to be intimidated, not to allow their discouragement to paralyze them. And so what does he do? He mobilizes people, he positions people, he repositions people, and he prepares them for action, and then he speaks. And he speaks to the nobles, and he speaks to the officials, and he speaks to all the people. He gathers everyone together, but it's what he says that is so critical. And if you only take away one thing from what I say this morning, if you only remember one line, please let it be this. Because here's what Nehemiah says when he gathers the people together. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Do you know, it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to lose sight of God. It's so easy to let them, and and whoever them are for you, it's so easy to let them or to let our circumstances and our situations fill our field of vision. And what happens? We become discouraged and we become fearful. And Nehemiah urges the people, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He is the powerful one. He is more than able. Yes, you feel weak. Yes, you feel imitated. Imitated? Intimidated. Yes, you feel up against it. But Nehemiah says, listen, look up. Remember to look up, remember to refocus, remember to reflect on the sufficiency, the greatness, and the bigness of God. That's where you'll find hope. That's where you'll find encouragement. That's where you'll find peace. Focus on your circumstances. Focus on what others are banging on about. Focus on the opposition, and you will lose your way. You won't finish the task you'll waste an opportunity. And if you're discouraged here this morning, and if you're feeling fearful or hopeless or overwhelmed about anything, can I please invite and prompt you to remember the Lord? One of the reasons we have communion every week at Windsor and we'll have it together this evening, is because we do that in remembrance of him. It reminds us 
to remember because we have a tendency to forget. Take time this afternoon to remember the greatness and the astonishing splendor of the Lord. In a few minutes, and it will be a few minutes, we're going to close with that song, The Splendor of a King. And we are inviting us all to join together and to declare how great is our God. And can I encourage you to use that last song as we close this service to remember, to declare that God is great, that he is awesome, that he is bigger, greater than whatever it is that I'm facing, I'm up against, and I'm discouraged by. And so Nehemiah's key advice to this people is remember. And then he says a line, it sounds like something from Braveheart. And fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. In other words, get focused on God, get active. And it's kind of back to this idea of prayer and action. Get on your knees, get on your feet. Pray and act. And as a result of Nehemiah's intervention, and as a result of the people's response to Nehemiah's intervention, Three things happen. One, the enemy's plans are frustrated. But they're frustrated by God. You see, Nehemiah isn't invincible and neither are the people and neither are any of us, but God is. Because as verse 20 says, it's God who fights for us. And secondly, work recommences. Verse 15, we all return to the wall each to his work. You see, whenever we remember that the Lord is great and is awesome, whenever our focus is realigned, whenever we fix our eyes where we should, things and life gets back on track, and what seemed impossible becomes possible, what seemed overwhelming becomes less threatening, and what seemed frightening is tamed. Remember the Lord is great and he's awesome, and finally, the people become better equipped and prepared as they re-engaged with the work at hand. So some worked, others stood guard, others worked with a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other. And a warning system was put in place. If people heard the trumpet, they were to congregate together and join one another. You see, getting discouraged in life, getting discouraged in a ministry, Getting discouraged in a project, especially as time goes on, is a real risk and it's a weapon of the enemy. And if it happens to you, or if you're there, pray and act. And remember, gets the guys to come back, remember how great is our God. I invite you to sing it this morning like you've never sang it before. Let's stand together and declare the splendor of the King.